Welcome to the Santa Cruz Coffee Break. If you're watching on YouTube or listening on Apple Podcasts, please follow, hit the like button, or any subscribes. It really helps us with the algorithms. Santa Cruz Coffee Break is independent of Santa Cruz Guitar Company, and all opinions are those of the speakers. Santa Cruz Coffee Break is produced by the Santa Cruz Guitar Players Forum. We invite you to join us on the Santa Cruz Guitar Players Forum at SCGCPF for more fun. Now, let's get on with this installment of Santa Cruz Coffee Break. Oh, we're started. I'm, oh, I'm oh, in. Oh, know? we're rolling. I'm loving this. Well, okay. kids. Um, I'm opening we up wanna, your questions on another computer here. Yeah, we want to welcome you to podcast number um, 12. And it's been aborted it been aborted one time and now we're <laughs> now we're back on the thing we seem to have our technology working where we need it to be and richard's probably um he's going to show up as mr stormgates but um on your screen here but uh remember all these opinions and stuff are strictly ours and thanks for coming and tad we got to get yeah. away from the forum we, we, we do, yes. Let's hope those gerbils keep those wheels spinning for a while here and we'll get through the end of this. Um, Richard, it's good to see you again. Um, I know it's been a little bit longer, but um, you want to give everybody a quick update on how the shop is doing and, and how you got past the Santa Cruz fires and evacuations and is, uh, you know, any updates for everybody? Yeah, um, I th most important things first. Um, my background here is missing my, uh, you know, my tell icons because, uh, you know, my most important items are in a box still in my truck, you know, ready to evacuate. Uh, we, um, you know, we, we got pretty practiced through COVID in dealing with adversity, uh, funny business, and, uh, 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 you know, really using the goodwill of our customers and vendors and stuff to get by. So it was not a hard decision to choose people over stuff uh, when the fires got near. Uh, the uh, evacuations were within probably about a mile and a half of where the shop is. And uh, even though our shop's a concrete tilt up, all it takes is, you know, like embers or ash or something on the roof to light things on fire. And we're in an industrial neighborhood and the egress, the way out of this is a bottleneck and there's a Costco nearby. And if they raised the alarm to leave, it'd be like two hours before, uh, you know, the, the last cars would get out. So it seemed prudent at that time uh, there was a, a red flag alert, which means um, really high temperatures, really high winds. And we and I just chose on a Wednesday to send everybody home and prepare uh, their own stuff. Um, that seemed much more prudent than having them here and have to go through the stress of a fire drill or heaven forbid risk lives. So, um, you know, I, I'm getting to be a veteran of adversity. <laughs> <laughs> through this and I, I, I tell you God has an amazing sense of humor you know just when your ego allows you to start thinking you have some control over things and you can do it your way you know uh, along comes brother fire or a, a pestilence or a plague to put you in your place so it's a good exercise I'm grateful for it all we're okay yeah. we're back we're <laughs> back fires abated and um, it's uh, uh, it, it's really unfortunate but it's a precursor of things to come and uh, it's good to have this heads up 
so, you know, enough about the stuff again. Everybody's safe uh, and back in their homes, save one who lost his house and all his stuff. He, he really got to call it 10 at night and had to be out immediately. And uh, he got, uh, when he finally got to go back home, there was some bed strings springs and a resonator plate <laughs> a pile of ashes from it from his dobro but um you know we take care of our own and uh we'll get him back on his feet and, and all will be good so with all of that uh adversity we still are the fortunate ones you know we all we all got out of this with our lives yes that that's great and and there is a link on the santa cruz guitar player forum website to the gofundme to help uh, your employee out um and you know, if if that link is still up uh, and anybody wants to, uh, it's a good thing to to help out. I know that you and the shop are doing a great job of supporting them, but uh, you know, we can all give a little more. So it's not anyway. yeah, it's not a time it's not a time for pride. Pride's way too expensive. This is uh, something that's uh, you know a beautiful thing. Uh, and I appreciate it. And, you know, all power to the forum. God bless every heart out there. Yeah. Well, it's, I, I, it's good to hear that the shop is safe and everybody is safe uh, or as safe as we can be these days. Um, the purpose of this podcast was to try and get some questions answered from the forum. Uh, questions that are directed uh, primarily at you, um, Mr. Rodeo. Um, and I think we just should just dive right into that if you're ready. Yeah, thank God. Finally, something I, I have an answer for. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Try me. All right. So um, the first one comes from uh, uh, Hank. and he, he wants to know uh, what your thoughts are on how the binding affects... Um, the final voice of the guitar and his question, you know, talks about exotic word uh, wood versus mother of pearl or powwow or, or, or ivoroid or whatever. And I think that there may be a little bit of confusion in terms of terminology. So maybe you could start by um, making sure we're all using the right words and, and uh, saying the right things. Okay. I'm, uh, I'm making some notes. I'm going to break this down. Uh, uh, and, and first, uh, let me uh, greet Hank. Thanks, uh, brother, for your support of the forum, uh, you know, your dauntless uh, uh, efforts on, on our behalf and all the goodwill you spread. So uh, breaking this down into the terminologies requested, Ted, is uh, we, the very outside element on the guitar we'll call the binding, and that's traditionally a wood an ivoroid, a tortoise shell, or uh, let's say a black or white plastic. The, um, uh, the inner rings uh, uh, on the top are the purflings, and the purfle comes from the violin trade. It was that black, white, black wood laminate that, that set in a little groove around the violin. And you see it on guitars in various uh, um, configurations. It could be one single one, uh, it could be two, it could be uh, three, or it could be uh, reconfigured to look like herringbone or something like that, uh, but they all serve the same function. Um, there's a shell, uh, abalone, uh, power, mother of pearl, um, on and on and on. Uh, and then there is, uh, 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 you know, <laughs> plastic, uh, uh, you know, 
once the industrial age started and we learned how to make friends with petroleum, there's all kinds of uh, wonderful miracle substances that have a great place in our lives, uh, unfortunately, not necessarily on guitars. So, uh, back to, how's that for a, 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 a lexicon? That, that helps a great deal. And, and as oh. I understand it, uh, the binding is there primarily to protect the edges of the guitar against, uh, you know, the random bonks and bings and dings. You can correct me, obviously, if that's wrong. But the, the purfling actually is there for another reason. It's got an important part in all this, right? Yeah, it does. And if we, you know, if we look at contemporary steel string guitar making, um, and I don't mean this to dismissive at all, you know, what everybody does is, is uh, as, you know, the foundational part of it goes back a millennia of people making stringed instruments and doing different things until some things become traditions. And in the violin, it it's, uh, doesn't have binding, but it has a purple. And in guitars, there's both binding and purflings. So I dare say that you'd find a lot of makers today, especially the larger ones, that couldn't give you any reason for this. They'd have to make up a story and, you know, protect the edge from banging into something is as good as any. Um, a better one would be to hide your joinery, you know. Uh, uh, when you bind it, it doesn't matter what it looks like, you know, you can cover it up. So it's a nice, nice way to trim things. And you're correct. Um, uh, the binding itself does have an effect on, on the sound, and we'll go into whether that's tonality or volume or EQ in a minute. Uh, and the purfling serves an important function if you uh, intend it to and you use the right material. So uh, here's what purfling does. Let's go to the violin. It's our, our real, uh, um, you know, pure example. Uh, the violin plate, of course, vibrates um, from the string energy and it, and it, it uh, pulses air that we hear as sound. And that sound can go anywhere. Imagine it can go in, in a, a, a spherical direction everywhere. But the violin's pretty small, and it's in an orchestra with a lot of other loud instruments. We really want to focus that sound out to the audience, because after all, they're the ones that will pay the ticket to come hear it. So to direct this sound forward, uh, the per this is where the purple comes in. The purple acts as a discoupler between the top and the framework of the violin. So when the vibration is generated in the top and moves from the bridge area out to the edge, the purple um, keeps it from transferring into the sides and back. How does it do that? It's kind of acoustically inert. It's like a bell made out of cardboard. In, in the traditional violin uh, construction, the purple isn't solid wood. It's wood that's been mashed up and rolled out into fiber and died. So you actually have like a cardboard or a paper. And since the vibration doesn't move readily through that, it returns to the top and it amplifies the string energy or it maintains more of that string energy to come out the sound holes. That's a mouthful. Um, when you, uh, if you took that same black, white, black laminate that's a purple and you looked at the end of it, you'd have a little square of black, white, black. If you cut that uh, instead of 90 degrees, you cut it at about 30 degrees, you'd have a parallelogram. You start stacking those together and you could create herringbone. Uh, 
and on and on and on. You could get any configurations you want, you know, our cowboy rope, um, uh, our S29, but as long as it's made out of the proper material, it will isolate, it'll give the guitar, uh, you'll hear more sound from that guitar than you would if you just coupled it with something like plastic. So purple is good, uh, it serves a function. Um, the binding itself, I don't, I don't have as good a wrap on the binding, but I do know from experience that when we use wood, a hardwood, such as uh, a rosewood, a cocobolo, uh, uh, that, that kind of material, the guitar seems to have more separation uh, between the notes, like a clearer tone. Uh, and I wish I gave you the physics on that, but I just don't. But but I also stop short of saying it's my opinion because it's, it's my experience. We've done this for many, many, many years. And the FS model is a good example of a guitar designed for uh, clarity, good separation between the notes, great projection, and the wood binding plays into that. So people say, uh, let me say, but you use um, Ivory, which is a plastic. How do you justify that? Well, Ivory is a, a, a remarkable substance and it goes back to the 18, uh, 60s, I'm going to say, and there was a, a competition in the, uh, the World's Fair, you know, industrial exposition uh, for the best substitute for ivory. You know, ivory was even in, in uh, short supply, high demand back then. And uh, I, I'll get this guy's name maybe here sometime. But uh, what he came up with was a composite of uh, cotton fiber uh, and made billiard balls. And the, the cotton fiber was uh, nitrated. Uh, uh, gooped, gooped with a solvent and formed into billiard balls and it's really on the way to making gunpowder and uh, it was it, it, it was it was uh, colored layered so it looked green it was a great job it did have the uh, tendency to explode on impact and uh, they worked that out by adding uh, camphor oil and again I don't know the chemistry but it stabilized it and this is why heaven forbid if you sand the ivoroid on the edge of your guitar it'll smell like Vicks VapoRub. So that is really, uh, let's go back to this, cotton fiber is cellulose and that's what trees are made out of. So we're really uh, gaming mother nature here when we do ivoroid or even a black celluloid or a, a green celluloid, we're using a composite that imitates the density of wood and we get the same effect. What we don't use is like an ABS, a vinyl, an acrylic uh, plastic, because uh, in my experience, those don't give us what we want. And again, I can't give you the chemistry of that. So you're starting to put this uh, idea together that we can compose the binding to control the sound of the guitar. It's not gonna affect the EQ, how much the bass and treble interact. It's not going to uh, change, uh, uh, let's say the overall uh, volume on the binding, but the purple will because you'll get more sound. So hopefully that's not too much information, just enough to appreciate the binding. Uh, Hank also mentioned shell. So shell is a, you know, a super hard material. And if that was the only uh, uh, coupling between the top and the sides and back, it would probably transfer the top's energy really efficiently. And you'd have a uh, loudness to the player at the loss of your audience. So instead of just putting shell on the top, in a 45 style or a 42 style where uh, abalone goes around the top or the edge of the fingerboard or the sound hole, 
We border that abalone with a purple on each side. So the abalone is actually buffered with a fiber on each side, and we get that, um, uh, that gasket-like effect blocking the vibration from moving into the sides. So we can make it look pretty, and we can also make it sound good. Um, did I miss anything there? No. I think that was Hank's question. I, I think that that covered most of it, at least in my mind, it did. Um, okay, so I was just, leave it to me to over over answer. Then one more thing I'm going to add to this is in you know in guitar building, you know in the in the in the true uh, Lutheran tradition that, that goes back to the violin and before, everything we do will have an effect on the sound. So it's the combination of these factors that allow us to please a customer and get what they want. Any one of them may be a small percentage of, of change in the sound of the instrument, but collectively, that's where we get our effect. The accumulation of small percentages, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, putting things together for results. Right, right. Yeah, not making choices randomly, that's... Um, Always a good thing. Um, so that we, well, there's a follow-up from Hank that he's asking about um, the whole concept of opening up of a guitar made from the caliber of materials you use. And I think that what that, that goes back to is the fact that you use uh, so many sustainable and uh, reclaimed materials that already have a certain amount of age uh, built into them, uh, whereas other builders may be using much newer material. Um, and people talk about guitars breaking in over time or the sound improving over time. And since you're starting with materials that are already aged and, and kind, of, kind of broken in, um, can you just kind of talk about how the opening up process works with uh, your guitars? That's a, I love that question uh, because it's a really good opportunity to give people some background, some real education on this. You know, the, the question comes up in various forms all the time on different forums and discussions between guitar players. And probably one of the things that has more folklore uh, than, than anything, you know. Um, uh, take your new Martin and put it next to the wood-burning stove for a half hour, then run out and stick it in the snow. That's the way to make a guitar open up, right? Now, there's quotation marks around the disclaimer that I don't know that that's true, but I speculate it's a really, really bad idea. Don't try that at home. Um, so I, I, I will give everybody the uh, kind of the physics behind, or not kind of, the physics behind this and what really happens that gives an older guitar, let's say, more overall resonance uh, and complexity than a new guitar. And Hank's on the right track. A big part of it is wood. In fact, a really big proportion of this change is in the wood itself. So um, let's imagine a, a newly cut piece of wood from a tree. Um, you could make a guitar top, you could uh, bake in it in an oven, and you could get the moisture of it pretty quickly. Um, you could build it into a guitar and uh, uh, stability aside, there's a question of stability as it, it will gain and lose moisture, um, is that it, it's not, it doesn't have water in it, but it has this viscous resinous stuff um, that's sticky and it's not what you'd make a bell out of. So the guitar made out of 
newer wood won't resonate fully because the sticky stuff will impede vibration. Uh, but give it time. Um, the, the process is not a drying out. The process isn't a um, uh, metaphysical thing. It's a polymerization. It's the way that uh, tight bond dries or glue dries. And over time, uh, these resins will get harder and harder to a point. And you'll hear that in the sound of the instrument. So, you know, one year, five years, 10 years, 25 years, 50 years, you'll notice a progressive increase in the resonance of the instrument and therefore the volume. Um, uh, complexity, nah, not so much. It just gets louder over time because it works more efficiently. Now, it, it, this is just what happens to the wood. Uh, and it doesn't matter if it's in a guitar or not. This could be in a dead standing tree. It could be a piece of wood on a, a cabinet maker's shelf. It could be something in an instrument, or it could be a, a favorite piece of wood in a violin maker's inventory that hadn't even been built into an instrument yet. All of these, the resins will polymerize and the wood will be more resonant over time. So let, you know, what percentage is that of the guitar opening up? I'm not sure, but it's a lot. Um, the older the piece that you start with, of course, the more advantage you have with that. So when we use uh, reclaimed, uh, you know, we, <laughs> I used to like having set a record like, wow, this wood is 120 years old. Um, we've come into woods now that completely ruin that contest. You know, we have wood to work with right now that's 40,000 years old. Uh, but yeah. nonetheless, uh, starting with the top, that's five years old, 10 years old, or in our case, uh, you know, European spruce that's 50 years old or Adirondack that's nearly 100 years old. It's, it's really is a huge benefit in the resonance of this wood already because it's got 100 years head start. So um, old wood is, is better because it's already more resonance. And, and hopefully that's really easy to follow. So um, inherent in Hank's question was, um, is, uh, uh, well, you know, if I get uh, your uh, 1934D, which is made out of old woods already, what can I expect as far as it opening up? Okay, now we come into the second part of this. Um, let's, let's just, we'll, we'll finish up this uh, polymerization of resonance, resonance by saying at 100 years, there still could be some way to go for that to be, um, the resonance to become harder, more resinous, uh, um, a resonant, I mean, but it, it's, it's not as, it's disproportionate to the first 100 years. So we've got a lot of our advantage in old sounding wood already. Now here's the next thing that um, not, is not often discussed, but it's really, really easy to understand. When you make an assembly of anything, um, uh, you know, you're gonna create some tensions uh, because, you know, a uh, chair doesn't grow into that shape or a guitar doesn't grow into that shape. You take woods and you manipulate them. And in the case of the guitar, you bend the sides, uh, you put them into a mold and assemble the guitar. There's some inherent tension there. Um, uh, in fact, even when you put the strings on it, you put the guitar under tension. So tension is kind of the antithesis of a vibration. It restricts vibration. And let's take uh, one extreme, you know, a guitar made in uh, 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 a factory uh, where a guitar can be made in two and a half hours. I mean, seriously, 
from start to finish, strung up, and then a box ready to go can be made in two and a half hours. And that guitar, you can be sure, has a lot of tension in it. And aside from other uh, anti-vibrational aspects of it, it is going to take a really long time, if ever, to open up and relax those tensions. Let's take a well-made guitar in a American factory. Well, they do a lot better job of craftsmanship. They create less tension, but nonetheless, they create tension. And that instrument is going to take time for it relax and becomes fully resonant, or its full potential of resonance. So mm -hmm. um, uh, we take, uh, you know, Santa Cruz and the builders uh, I know would take the time to make sure things fit, that sides are properly tempered so they don't have any spring back and try to build an instrument with as le the least tension as possible, therefore sounding more open to start with. So your guitar, depending on how it was made, um, will take more or less time for tension to, uh, to find their place for the, for the instrument to take its um, uh, you know, stasis, its natural state, and vibrate fully. And uh, that's, that's an important factor as well. So no matter how old the wood is, when you manipulate that into a guitar assembly, you're going to have to wait for some time for it to plumb here. But I want to make sure that's clear to everybody. Okay. Oh, you don't even know what I'm saying. <laughs> so no, there's one more. I, I, I know you asked the question, you know the answer, but let me bring you back here. So we've got two. We've got one, the polymerization of the resins of the wood getting harder and more resonant over time. The second one is the, the, the building of the instrument creates tensions, and as those tensions dissipate as the assembly comes to, you know, uh, entropy, it will be more resonant. Um, and then lastly, the one that's the most sexy and that everybody does all the talking about is the least percentage of change, but the one most grabbed onto by discussions on the forum. And that is the, um, uh, uh, the, the acoustic physics term would be de-damping. Um, uh, the words we use is like, um, well, man, the more you play it, the better it sounds. Right, so something to do with vibration that re, that makes this instrument come alive, and it's beautiful metaphysical idea. You know, the quality of play that somebody puts into it, or the heart that they give it, how much they play, um, and one by by example, you know, you've seen discussions uh, about putting your guitar in front of speakers and blasting your guitar while you're at work. And doing that, and, and other people saying, "No, no, no, that won't work because it's not, um, uh, it's not the same, right? It, it doesn't have the same uh, uh, spiritual purity." Well, the the funny business here is that that the vibration does something, and the uh, violin makers knew this really, really well. You know, you take a piece of wood that's old and dry, and it has it has an element of stiffness. But if you were to work that and flex it, you can make it more elastic. And I like to use this analogy that Roger Simonoff uses in his book on tap tuning. He says, you know, you sit down, put on a video, and you eat an ice cream bar. And you finish with the ice cream, and you start playing with the little wooden stick. And you twist it back and forth and play around with it. And an hour and a half later, the movie's over and your stick bends more flexible. You didn't break any fibers in it, but it's more flexible. 
And this idea of de-damping in the, in the instrument itself is that as the wood vibrates, it gets more elastic and it can, uh, and it can produce more resonance. So this is, is not any vibration that does this. It's the vibration specific to that piece of wood or the airspace that it creates. So in a guitar, let's take the top is going to have a fundamental uh, uh, resonance. You tap on it uh, without it being obstructed by anything else, and it's going to hit a note, right? Also, the airspace. If you could excite the airspace, you know, blow into the guitar, uh, tap, tap the chamber, you're going to get a note. And if the, if the guitar or the violin vibrated those frequencies, either of them, for long enough time, it will de-dampen the wood or give the wood some elasticity. Other frequencies won't because they won't move it. Um, so uh, you can then see if you put this guitar in front of speakers while you're off at work, it's like um, it's trying to knock a, a needle out of a haystack with a shotgun blast. It's only that one pellet that hits it that's going to do anything. And in this case, the vibration. So uh, de-damping is not a matter of uh, how much you play. It's how often you would excite the wood with the note that uh, the top or the airspace is. And playing the guitar itself is not a lot of power. So you're going to, uh, you know, you're going to have to do a lot, a lot, a lot of time before you see an effect. So if you wanted to game that uh, de-damping, uh, the, uh, in the violin tradition, uh, you know, a maker would have his, all the violin making was top secret, you know, Gil didn't tell anybody anything. But uh, one of the things that after, after it's carved close to shape, then you would manipulate an area of the, of the top manually, depending on your tradition, you know, what you learned from your master. And you would actually flex that part of the top over and over and over and over and over again to get more flexibility in that area than you would on other parts of the top. And that'd be a good job for an apprentice. You know, you um, uh, uh, bought somebody's teenager for a few years and he sat on a stool and wiggled tops and got this de-dampening. So in the, in the guitar itself, um, what we have is uh, how do you, you know, you can't do that in the instrument effectively, but you could excite these, uh, the plate or the airspace with a frequency if you just, if you went about it. And, uh, you know, there's commercial uh, things out there. Uh, but uh, uh, again, I'll go back to Simonoff and his book Tap Tuning. He took a little, um, a little vibrating motor and the way you make anything vibrate is you have a motor, you put a weight off center, it goes wog, wog, wog. And the faster it goes, the higher the frequency it is, the slower it goes, the lower the frequency it is. And uh, I'm not giving this as a how-to for me to try at home because you could wreck your guitar, so let's be careful here. But if you took a, a cable tie and strapped that to your bridge, you know, with the guitar strung up, and then put a little train transformer on that where you could control the speed you could control the uh, uh, frequency that the guitar top or airspace is excited at. And you could tell really quickly what the frequency of the top or the airspace was because at that frequency, the guitar would howl. I mean, it'll scare you how loud it is. That's where you would want it to be. And if you went to work and left that and come back, you'd probably notice a difference. Um, I'd suggest you, uh, I'm going to pitch Roger's uh, tap tuning book, go buy that and find out how to do it before you try it at home. Yeah. So we have, uh, 
we have the polarization of resins, we have the, the uh, a dissipation of tensions from the build, and finally we have the de-damping, which is the wood becoming more resonant over time due to specific vibrations. Now, let's break those down in percentages. I can't, but I'm gonna guess for the purposes of this answer, that, um, that the wood itself is the majority. You know, it's gonna be over 50%. Uh, the release of tensions is going to be another larger number, and the de-dampening finally is going to be a smaller number. So if we've taken care of the first two by using really old wood, building with care without tension in the guitar, or as little tension as possible, then the de-damping becomes lesser of a concern. And we do the first two really well, if I may say, and the de-damping will leave to you. So um, there, there you go. All right, all right. So the only thing I think I would like to, to make sure we clarify is, is early on when you were talking about the wood, you're talking about baking it. You're talking about kiln drawing it. We're not talking about torification or any of those exotic processes that some of the other uh, shops are starting to do more of. We're just talking about basic kiln drawing yeah. of the wood. Um, well, specifically, I'm talking about what happens to wood if you just cut it from the living, you stop the life of the wood and you set it aside and then see what happens. You know, right. killing, you know, we call our uh, unit a kiln, but it's really a, a, a dehumidification chamber, which is really manipulating air drying by controlling the elements of, uh, you know, heat air movement and stuff like that. There's good old fashioned air drying where you stack it up in the rafters and leave it for 10 years. And then there's the commercial kilning where you heat it up till the moisture boils out of it. And uh, I'm gonna leave that one out because it's too too complicated yeah. to go there. You're right. Yes, that's the answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that does get a little complicated. So, uh, all right. Wait a minute. Um, Wait a minute. It's, one thing, one it's thing a there. lot of information, but it's but um, you know again, and Ted, as you know, in these things, my my goal is to help educate people in the science behind how the guitars work, not to demystify them, but to even make it seem uh, more magic in how it works. Um, you can go online and get opinions at home for free, and you don't have to listen to me. So I really uh, try to avoid opinions, and I, I I try to warn you when I do. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, just one thing that I, I don't get on that. Is it a solid like a fudge icicle, uh, fudge ice cream bar, or is it you know, ice cream with chocolate around it? Um, the fudge sickles what came to mind for me. I think we're on to something there. Got That's it. one of the metaphysics which will be on the podcast. Got it. All right. Um, let's see. Let's get on to another question here. Um, we have one, um, this is from Acoustic Soul and Majestic Shaver. I think that's what it is. Um, and they're asking about to hear your thoughts on a 17 inch lower bout FTC. Um, they say they prefer 17 to 16 or 18 inch. Um, and they're thinking they would love to hear an FTC with a bigger sound. And I'm thinking maybe they may be confusing the F with the FTC with the FS. Um, but um, talk to us a little bit about the Model F, Richard, and, and about the size and, and how the size affects the sound, I guess, would be the best way to approach that. Um, 
Okay, yeah, I can I can uh, uh, take that. And uh, what I'm going to concentrate on is um, airspace. Um, you know, we're, what we're talking about here is the width of the lower bout, you know, left to right on this uh, 16, 17, and 18 inch. And, uh, you know, 16 inch is about what a dreadnought is. Uh, 17 inch is uh, getting into, uh, you know, arch tops. Uh, uh, J200 Gibson might be a little over 17 inches. And then 18 inches, you're talking like a Super 400. Um, uh, you know, Archtop uh, Gibson Jazz Guitar. And we've built all three, but we've done the variations of 17, 18 inch and the Archtop versions. So let me start here. Um, uh, airspace, and this is pretty intuitive, the larger the airspace, the more volume up to a point. Also, the larger the airspace, the more volume if the front to back are the proper distance apart, the proper proportion of depth to width, and you'll increase the volume. Uh, you can you imagine this. You can make a 20-inch wide guitar that was one inch deep that would sound horrible, right, and really quiet. So there's some, there's some more uh, science behind matching the depth of it with the width of it. But all in all, bigger is louder. That makes plenty of sense. And in uh, doing the uh, F model, um, which is a flat top, a, a curved brace back. Uh, we prefer the 16 inch. It's more, um, uh, it's more versatile. It pleases more people most of the time. Uh, in the arch top, we've gone as much as 17 inches because uh, uh, we have a little less uh, depth in the arch top uh, uh, because of the arch back and top. We add a little more airspace and we dialed it in so it works and makes a louder guitar. The 18 inch in an arch top also works and makes a big, more boomy uh, guitar louder. And that was, you know, like the Super 400 is really popular. You'll see it in all the old videos of, uh, you know, the big bands, uh, the, you know, the ballrooms and the movies and things like that. And there's a guy with a Super 400 and it makes almost any player look like about an eight-year-old, except for you, it makes you look like you're playing an OM because um, uh, they're so big. So, so that's really the thing is the sizes. So with uh, Acoustic Soul, and again, thanks for his participation in the forum. I always like his stuff. Is going uh, with the F model, you know, conventional uh, braced flat top and braced back. Uh, we could go up to 17 inches and probably achieve what he was looking for. And we do that somewhat in the OM Grand proportionally, you know, and making it wider. But 18 inches on a flat is a little bit out of my ability to control. And I'll go back to the Gibson J200. Uh, I've played and heard some that were pretty nice sounding guitars, but more I've found them to be kind of vacuous and tubby because something about the uh, uh, the shallow depth and the wide bout just didn't come together. You know, maybe they were built a little heavy could be another factor, but I'm just not, I'm just not into the 18 inches. Now you hear me talking about a regular luthier, you know, these are all opinions based on a uh, small experience. I'm more comfortable in the 16 and 17 inch range in those two. So if you think I got that, um, his intent on that one? Well, yeah, I think, but he says, um, 
he says he'd like to hear it with a bit bigger sound. Uh, better for those of us who don't finger pick, finger pick uh, and want a little chunkier response. So if a, if, a, if a guitarist came to you and said, you know, I want more of a chunkier sound, I want more of a, uh, a big sound coming from the guitar, is that something that you can achieve without having to actually change the dimensions of the guitar? I mean, is this within your capabilities as a shop by the choice of back and sides and top and bracing and some of these other things? Uh, yeah, a qualified yes. Um, we've got, um, you know, we've got uh, more control over the sound of our guitar than than most people. Not because we're smarter. That's just the nature of our business. We're not mass marketers. We're custom builders, right? So we're building to somebody's specifications. Uh, bigger companies don't need to do that. They don't need to please one customer. They can they can uh, uh, do that through marketing. So the um, uh, the thing here to get to control bass versus treble, you know, relative volume bass versus treble, which we'll call EQ or equalization, is 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 a breeze. You know, we can do that by size of the guitar, how we shape the bracing, how big we make the sound hole. Um, the tone of the guitar, where I'm going to think maybe chunky could come into that, um, is how bright or dark, how clear or how warm and blended an instrument is. Right? So yeah, all those things we can do really, really easy. If somebody just wants to increase sheer volume, uh, we usually do it by making, uh, a, a, steering them to a larger guitar. But do understand a lot of people think volume uh, is how loud the bass is. And, and Acoustic Soul is a much more sophisticated uh, player. You know, he's pretty articulate about this, not him. But oftentimes, you know, somebody will sit down with a guitar and strum the low E string and go, whoa, that's a boomer. That's for me, right? Um, yeah. If we're talking overall more volume, usually that's achieved by just larger airspace. Yeah. So he's on the right track. Yeah. Okay, so it's something that, that if somebody... It sounds like they should talk to you if they really wanted to try and get you to build a guitar like that. You'd probably be able to help them without necessarily saying go to an 18-inch guitar. Yeah, and one of the you know one of the great services we can do for people is if they want something uh, that's within our uh, experience and expertise, uh, we can guarantee them you know. Uh, complete satisfaction. If it's something that's neither not within our expertise or experience, my best service to them is to recommend them to a maker or an existing guitar that does do that. So, you know, an 18-inch OM uh, would be something that I would say, you know, let's look around. Maybe there's some place you could get that. Try it and see if you really like it rather than risk uh, having us do it as an experiment. Right, right. No, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, all right, so, well, so our next one is from, uh, uh, somebody who calls themselves SCGC lover, um, which is, you know, not terribly unique, but you know, they, they, they got, they got it in there. So we'll let them have that for a title. Um, and it's a, <laughs> and it's a question about, um, open tuning. It, it, I can read this cause it's a little bit long, but we'll try and get through it quickly. Um, I had a luthier built a double odd that was made in the nineties. And when I went through my Michael Hedges obsession, I started playing with wacko tunings and heavier strings. 
and tore the bridge off twice. Uh, the maker said that if I was going to treat the guitar like that, he was going to stop fixing it under warranty. Okay. <laughs> Fast forward to now, and my primary guitar is a SCGCH12 in mahogany, uh, and it's the stuff dreams are made of. But I'm afraid to fool with tunings and percussions as I don't want to hurt it. I saw the Eric Sky interview, and he said that that is the only model guitar he owns, and he does altered tunings. I had been planning to buy something bigger and badder for tuning and slapping. Is the H12 up to it, or should I add an OMG or something? Uh, in an ideal world, I would only own one guitar. Who wants to live in that world? Um, and in the practical world, I own too many already. Yeah. So um, it actually raises a number of interesting questions. I mean, the first one I would say is, um, when somebody comes to you with a specific style of playing and they say to you, I really want to do wild altered tunings and I'm going to be slapping the guitar and banging the guitar and whatever else, um, do you then aim them towards a specific model or do you say, well, we can modify something or how would you approach that? Interesting, you're, you're right, that question uh, lends itself to a lot of interpretations about what the player really is looking for. Um, uh, so they're putting heavy gauge strings on a guitar uh, to get something out of open tunings that they don't, that they're not getting, and they're hoping that will be the solution. So I, I, I could be wrong, but I'm going to suggest what their problem is, is they take a guitar that has strings designed for concert pitch and they go into a tuning where strings are, uh, some strings are dropped, let's say, to go into a open uh, a D or something like that. And these strings, when you drop the tension, aren't designed for that and they don't, they're not loud enough and they sound, uh, the, the, the quality of sound is poor, you know. Uh, you can get a lot of uh, oscillation. So to solve that problem, he got overall a heavier gauge set of strings. Again, it's like uh, it's like shooting a pea with a shotgun. Um, it, his problem was the strings he tuned down, not all of the strings. So when he put heavy gauge strings on the guitar and popped the bridge off, that's not rocket science, or maybe it is. You know, too much tension pulls the bridge off, and his uh, maker was right. Geez, fella, you know, if you're going to do that, I can't yeah. fix these for free. So his, if that's the case, his solution would be better to target those strings he's uh, tuning down and see how he can get tension to get quality of sound without damaging his guitar. So this is not too difficult. Um, uh, this is this is really the foundation. I'll, I'll do this really briefly. I'm not pitching our strings, but this is the science behind our strings. You know, uh, most strings are made for general purpose to allow a lot of people to do a lot of things and make the brand popular overall. Our strings are very specific. Um, to make you sound the best in like a concert pitch. Uh, we do a dad-gad set, a baritone set, and those gauges are adjusted to give the proper tension at the tuning you would put in, let's say, in a dad-gad. So instead of taking your conventional um, uh, D string, tuning it down till it sounds awful, that string has enough tension at that drop D to sound great without putting more tension on your guitar than it was intended for. And the way you find this out, 
um, if you don't just buy the strings from us, is to uh, go on Diderio's uh, website, and they have a um, um, a string tension. Uh, they have several different string tension calculators and uh, charts, and and even some are interactive where you can put that in. So you could actually put in, you know, I have uh, um, I have a Santa Cruz OM. You choose the scale length uh, and the tuning you want, and they'll give you a recommendation for the string gauge to buy for it. There's another way too. Which is you can take um, you can take your concert pitch and let's go let's go back to the D string. I mean the E string you're going to tune down to D. So you look at the E string in standard pitch on on uh, you know regular scale, and it goes okay that tension is uh, I'm making this up 20.3 pounds, and you go okay when I tune that down to D, it's only um, nine pounds. No wonder it sounds awful. So I'm going to get a gauge that at D is going to be a much heavier gauge, but at D it's also 20 pounds, and you're going to have a match. You're not going to put any more tension on the guitar's design, but you'll also have a string that in D will be as loud as the E string in concert pitch. That's a tongue twister, but it, 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 with that research, then you would buy, of course, strings individually and get the set you want for your tunings. It does not lend itself well to having one guitar on stage to do, uh, uh, not many people have the pattern to support a, a complete string change on stage. <laughs> but you get what I'm saying here. Okay? Yeah, so no. that, that is, that's our intent in, in designing those strings for people uh, to start with. Now, we, you know, we don't intend to do every tuning by any means. Uh, but I, I certainly advise somebody on that. And luckily, the calculations are available to the ordinary player online, which is a, which is a really nice service. Diderio is a spectacular company. You know, their service to players in the industry, their philanthropy, their vision, they're a wonderful company. And I really encourage that, that people support them. That's great. But so that raises one quick question for me, or hopefully quick. Um, Smaller guitars tend to have a, a pyramid-style bridge, as opposed to larger guitars, which generally have a, a belly style. And it seems to me like those have a greater surface area for gluing the bridge to the top. If one wants to get into these more aggressive styles of playing and tuning, would you recommend people go with a larger belly bridge or Am I completely wrong? Now that you, that's um, that's that's uh, one of my favorite conundrums. If you shrink a donut, does the hole get bigger or smaller? Uh. What? What? What do you say? Um, seriously, it's it's not an intuitive thing. If you increase the surface of the bridge, uh, you could you could increase the contact and, and and improve the transfer of vibration, or so you could also increase more impedance. You know, from the vibration getting through. I think the reason, you know, first off, that pyramid bridges are on smaller guitars is because smaller guitars that were made at a time when littler bridges were were the vogue, and uh, just like slotted peg heads. You know, why do people put slotted pegs on smaller guitars? Because that's how it used to be, uh, not that's how it should be. 
So wow. um, in the in the pyramid bridge, uh, my concern would be more uh, somebody's aggressive style is the design of that bridge has both the bridge pin holes closer to the saddle and the saddle closer to the front edge of the bridge. And if somebody was was really hard on the guitar, it you know, maybe structurally it could uh, give away with a crack in the bridge uh, saddle slot or something like that. So um, we don't we don't do that as a matter of course, make a bigger bridge for harder play, because we're thinking that. Um, you know, as I said before, if somebody came, as you described, and said, you know, my, you know, stage persona is flamboyant, and I really, really beat my guitar, you know, um, uh, what would you suggest? You know, there's a punchline coming here, I'm pausing. What, <laughs> you know, what I, what I would ask is like, well, what, you know, are, are you just strumming? Are you picking single notes? Uh, what, to, or do you really need a good sounding guitar? Or is it, you know, forgive me, is it only a prop or is it just for sheer volume? And in that case, I would probably steer them to uh, something to be a lot cheaper for them. Uh, if they wore it out or stepped out on stage, I can get one the same color uh, in, in the next guitar shop, right? Save a lot of money. They might not need the sophistication we're building into an instrument. So most people playing heavy doesn't mean really thrashing and it wouldn't be a problem or a limitation on a pyramid bridge. Um, uh, uh, because by design, we, we've been through a lot of iterations on the pyramid bridge to make it stronger. And I don't want it, uh, to take us too far off, but you know, uh, that's why we slant the saddleback 10 degrees from perpendicular on the, the pyramid bridge is to give it more uh, direct transfer of energy into the top, also to give it more durability because the string is now pressing down on the saddle, not pushing it forward, which is where the crack could come from. So right. maybe too much information, but that's that's kind of where I take that 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 yeah. question. No, that, that makes a lot of sense, and, and I have to admit that I always considered the double ot or the small guitars to be um, more delicate, shall we say? Uh, right up until the uh, first time I saw Catfish Keith perform, at which point I realized, <laughs> well, that kind of throws that whole idea out the window. <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> Uh, have you, uh, Roy Rogers, the blues player, Roy Rogers, uh, same way. He, I think he uses like a, a, a double O or something like that. And it's an old Martin and man, he does get sound and, and beats that. Yeah, that's the, that's the fallacy. Uh, the reason people think smaller guitars or parlor guitars are quiet is because their sample is factory made guitars that are just built too heavy to sound good. Um, uh, if built proper, little guitars are spectacular because, you know, people used to perform acoustic concerts without amplification with those little guitars, you know, in music halls. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's very true. Excellent. Well, that's a good answer. I hope, I hopefully we, we covered that one well enough. Hopefully it was, uh, it was the answer to his question. <laughs> <laughs> so the next one is from uh, Silly Mustache. Um, and his, he says, I have a Santa Cruz RS uh, built in about 2012. It looks to be pretty standard spec. Uh, so I assumed that it had a Sitka top. But looking at your website yesterday, it says that Adirondack is standard. Uh, whatever it is, I love the guitar, but is it possible to advise? Um, 
So I, I think let's start there and then we'll finish up the question in a minute. But there have been some changes over the years in what you do is in terms of standard versus custom. Um, and um, is it possible that when this guitar was built that Sitka was standard and now Adirondack is standard? Or is it more a question of when that guitar was built, somebody specified Sitka and, you know, where all that's going? Yes. <laughs> well, you're right. Nice question. Um, uh, I'll, I'll fill that out a little bit. Um, so if we didn't respond to market trends, uh, maybe we'd be a different business and maybe some businesses are successful with that. But not only do we respond to market trends, but it's a lot more fun, uh, you know, to be contemporary with that. So uh, in uh, 2012 is just not that long ago. Let's let's say something like uh, 2089. I mean 1989. Um, you, you know, you'd be hard pressed in the general populace to have people uh, that knew what Adirondack spruce was. You know, there, when we first started out, there was no panache for Adirondack, and if you, and if, you know you said in general, and if you said, well, that's what old Martins were made out of, people would go so. <laughs> um, uh, today, Adirondack is seen as uh, as a, a premium wood, maybe an upgrade, and because it's what Martin used to use, it goes with the assumption that that's because it was the good stuff. So in 2012, I'm just going to guess that Sitka Spruce was the standard for that guitar because that was the standard for most of our guitars, and the reason was it kept the price down. Sitka is not necessarily inferior. It's just an easier, uh, an easier wood to acquire. There's more of it. There's more of it cosmetically acceptable, and our price was reasonable, and we didn't have, have to add an upcharge for it. So um, uh, he, if I saw that guitar, I could tell him if it was Sitka or Adirondack, but um, I didn't, didn't hear the second part of his question. The thing is, you, you said it very well. Uh, I'm going to say probably that guitar was Sitka standard, but there's no reason to believe uh, at that time we were probably 75% custom that the top might not have been uh, European or an Adirondack spruce as well. Today, yes, our guitars come standard with Adirondack, uh, both for market demand and we have the good fortune of uh, make, having a relationship and a connection that allows us to get nice old beautiful looking Adirondack spruce um, and uh, we don't have to charge an obscene amount for it and and we like using it. it's the most popular so it becomes the standard right but if, if somebody wanted Sitka you'd be perfectly happy to build a guitar with it yeah oh yeah yeah and we did probably the first um, you know I'm, I'm guessing maybe the first uh, Adirondack spruce top we used I'm, I'm really wildly guessing here maybe for uh, Neil Hogan that's really, really popular online uh, teacher. He's out of Los Gatos. Uh, he used to have the music store Joplin and Sweeney. Uh, maybe you remember that one. But anyway, uh, uh, we'd gotten an Adirondack spruce top and the story to it. We had no idea, but we built out of it to try it out. And that was what Martin used to use in the old days. But it was that obscure then. Now, of course, everybody knows the story. Right, right. 
that, that just lends itself to, we need to do a podcast one of these days about um, changes in the industry and, and in customer expectations and everything else. But that's a whole different thing. All right. Thank so, you. So let's do it while I can still remember the stories, okay? Yes, yes. But the second half of Silly, Silly Mustache's question is that um, it has been played out frequently. I'm careful with my instruments and it has yet to acquire any serious things or dents. But there are many minute scratches, possibly from being cleaned and polished with microfiber claws when I restring. The nitro finish seems quite soft compared to other guitars, so I'm wondering if you might have a recommendation for a scratch remover that you might assist. Do you want to give us a little insight into general uh, care, maintenance, feeding, whatever, of uh, the nitro finish you guys use? Yeah, certainly. Does he give a, um, I missed this, did he give any date for his guitar? Uh, a 2012, he says. Okay. That, that was that coincidentally the same as that RS? Or it is yeah. the RS? That's the RS, okay. yeah. Okay. So, uh, uh, nitro in general, um, uh, is uh, you know it, it achieves a certain durometer, um, not as hard as some uh, synthetics and stuff like that. Um, but overall, uh, uh, when he says soft, uh, alarm bells went off um, because the nitro is not soft. Um, if his is soft, there's two things that could have happened. Uh, one could be environmental. Um, uh, everybody knows well. I wish everybody knows that synthetic uh, leathers like Naga hide in a strap uh, or uh, a personal care product like mosquito repellent, uh, uh, if it's in a closed case, can off gas and it can soften a nitro finish. Um, so I'd love to talk to him if he sees this podcast. Give me a call. Uh, let's uh, let's look at your guitar and see if there's something else that we need to address here. Well, so if, if if that's an outlier, uh, let's set that aside for now for this answering this question. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about nitro in general. Um, a microfiber cloth shouldn't abrade that unless it had uh, dirt, grit, or contamination in it. Um, uh, the, the, there's a million polishes uh, out there for guitars, and one of the caveats is you want to avoid anything with um, uh, silicone in it. Um, silicone is a nice slippery stuff that makes anything look shiny, and it's in most products that you use to clean or polish anything, like Armor All or uh, uh, Pledge maybe. Uh, things like that, and and it, and it works, makes things really nice and shiny and slippery. But also, it'll it'll migrate into any cracks or crevices, and uh, they will resist finish in the future any attempts to refinish that. So if you have a crazed look on your top from uh, a thermal shock, shock going from hot to cold, or a crack or something like that, you hope to get fixed someday. You don't want to use a polish that could impede that uh, repair in the future. Um, we uh, we use and I recommend Virtuoso. Uh, they have both a polish and a cleaner. And uh, again, most products uh, polishes are generally a um, uh, like a, a, a wax. Uh, we make we make a wax for nitro that's specifically formulated, but it's not to get scratches out. It's a way to um, clean off your guitar and put a light protective coat on it that will resist like, you know, wine spills or drool or really, you know, small abrasions that would come from a scratchy cloth. 
Uh, but to get scratches out on a cleaner, you need something that's abrasive. And uh, uh, like a virtuoso cleaner, um, uh, turtle wax, uh, some of the commercial polishes, the abrasives in it are about the same grit, grit as toothpaste. They're not very abrasive at all, but they'll get out superficial scratches and uh, little swirls. Sometimes the products are called swirl removers, and you would use those to get get the, the minutest stuff off, and then you would follow with the polish that usually has a wax to protect it. So having, having covered that part of it, if the scratches uh, are deep, and let's call scratches something you can see if you hold the guitar in a certain light and it will appear. Uh, a crack, a shatter, those are different things. If the yeah. lacquer is compromised by a break, then, then there's no stuff you can wipe on it to fix it. That requires another repair. But these are, if these are superficial scratches, the commercial products will take care of it. If those scratches are deeper, and there's no way to quantify uh, how deep this is, but if a regular polish uh, doesn't take care of that, then you really need a professional um, uh, uh, technician or somebody that understands guitars and nitro to use a more aggressive abrasive. And these things do exist. You can find them, but I'm not going to recommend them because you'll be in a lot of hurt uh, uh, once you start on one part of your guitar and don't know how to get out of it. Uh, you ever, you ever uh, crush garlic in a little squeezer and it squirts on the ceiling? And you get up on it and you and you go, I'll clean that off and you wipe it. And now there's this nice bright spot where the paint is bright and clear and the rest of the ceiling has to be clean now. And that's kind of like what you'll get into ex that experimentation. So um, if you have scratches that don't come out with something like a virtuoso uh, cleaner, Dunlop products are great. Uh, Etc. If that doesn't work, yeah, go go to somebody that you have heard has a reputation for working with nitrocellulose finish. Most repair people avoid finish work because it requires expertise and uh, the you know the work can be thankless sometimes. So it's hard to make that complicated, but I do want to have people avoid trying to chase something that's kind of out of their league. Yeah, no, and but, and I have to say that it's been my experience that they're they actually seem to have different levels of grit of microfiber okay. claws. And some of them, you know, are just way too much. I mean, I, I personally only like to use soft cotton claws, avoid microfiber just so I never okay. have to worry about whether it's going to be abrasive or not. Um, and the other thing I've, I've found is that, you know, when a brand new Santa Cruz comes off the, the bench, the finish is so perfect. I mean, just the, the sheen, the, the gloss is just so perfect that literally, even if you dress yourself in cotton balls and pick it up and start playing it, you're gonna get some very, very fine swirl marks uh, into that finish. And that the best thing to do is just not worry about them for you know five or 10 years when eventually the whole surface will have swirled so evenly you'll never notice it. <laughs> That's beautiful. That's so well put. I should leave it alone. Uh, but I will add this. You know, uh, thank God for the first ding you put in your guitar because because now it's over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't have well, to worry about putting. 
Well, and I like your comment about the wax because I hadn't really thought about waxing my Santa Cruz's, but you know, getting the drool off of them when you lend them to friends, that can be a problem. So I hadn't thought about the wax. I, 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 you know, I always I toyed with starting a campaign to not call it a pick guard, but call it a friend guard for that very reason. Yeah. You know, scratches don't happen in your own hand. So, you know, but I do want to extend that invitation to uh, Silly Mustache to uh, contact me. And, and let's nail this down. We have in our history um, been forced to change uh, uh, lacquer companies. We have stuck with our own formulation, uh, but there's interpretations of it. And there's times we had to correct uh, somebody that that gave us something that wasn't uh, as hard as we wanted, and if that if he, if he's up to, against something like that, of course we're going to take care of him on it. Sure. Well, let's okay. We let's do one last question. I think we we've covered a lot of ground, and a couple of these other questions I think will just take way too long. Um, but it's another question about. Um, um, references or books that you might recommend for people. You, you talk a lot about how you got your initial training or education on building guitars by looking at reference books uh, on the violin tradition. Um, so if somebody wants to start gaining some of the knowledge that you have and start to learn some about the history and tradition, uh, are there any books that you might recommend? And are there any new books that you've seen that um, you think are worthy of adding to uh, one's library? Wow, that's that's a really evocative question. Um, and and actually a little overwhelming. Let me get, let me start with the beginning here. Uh, my you know my real seminal reading on violin making was. Uh, yeah, you know, a mere 51 years ago, and uh, I had I had uh, an in-house professional reference librarian to uh, my dear mom, who uh, 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 people know this story. Uh, I wanted to build a guitar, but there was nothing in print on guitar building, so I ate up everything I could get on violins. And with her connections, she was able to get me these, um, uh, you know, both scientific treatises. Uh, uh, speculative treatises by aficionados, uh, uh, violin makers' diaries, uh, and things like that. And for the life of me, I don't even know that I ever would have written down who had written those uh, or the names of them. You know, the the first book that I remember reading, I really really enjoyed, is Violin Making as it is and was. It goes back to the dawn of time and is still there. And it's it's a little more pedestrian in that regard. But unfortunately, I don't have a bibliography in that regard. But I'll tell you, what I could access back then would pale in comparison to you know to anybody's online search right now uh, and yeah. looking for information on those things. I think that uh, you'd find a wealth of knowledge. Also, there's a new, uh, uh, it's a new day. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, when I started uh, making guitars, it, it, you know, it was, I ran infrequently into people that were secretive and crabby and had no use for somebody beginning. Uh, today, that's extremely rare in guitar making. In fact, it stands out. Um, but in Europe, uh, in guitar making, it, it's changed. Uh, 
uh, used to be the guild system, and you just didn't share information. But when they saw what was happening in the U.S. with a with a quick expansion and growth and expertise in guitar making, they wanted to get in on the bandwagon, so they started opening up. And believe it or not, this has affected things like the violin trade. And where it used to be, uh, you know, part of your professional accountants was being a crabby old guy that wouldn't answer any questions. Today, there's more people that are willing to share because they know the return they'll get on that is, is worth whatever imagined secret they might be giving away. So uh, there's a lot, the short answer is a lot of stuff being published, and there's a lot of people open to questions on that. Yeah, and, and I have to admit that, like, I can think back to reading my first, uh, one of my first books uh, by Overholzer, and, you know, some, a lot of the information in that is probably not terribly valid. I, it, I remember they have a whole section about going down to your local lumber yard and uh, digging through the pallets of Brazilian rosewood so that you could try and find some pieces that were roughly quarter sawn and then, uh, you know, cutting it into thin slices and boiling it so that you could bend it around the mold. <laughs> and I don't think any of you that know, is particularly they, practical or viable these days. I, and thanks for that, Tad. That's my roots. Uh, Art Overholzer was my uh, grandfather in Luthery. Uh, uh, he taught Bruce McGuire, who, who taught me, and, uh, you know, wrote, he wrote one of the first books out there on uh, instrument making and guitar making. And, and you have to, he was a machinist and realized where he came from is he made his first violin with a pocket knife. And he went from there. And what he was sharing with the world is his methodology. And including, he coated the inside of his guitars with Thompson water seal. It was, <laughs> seems he was also uh, pals with uh, uh, the old man Macbeth in Berkeley, the big, beautiful old hardwood store. You know, the elephant with the log in its tusks. And uh, um, uh, although he didn't travel with the old man on expeditions, um, I went there with him and heard from old man Macbeth about his expeditions into Brazil and getting this stuff. And you're right. When I first started out, you could go to that big lumber yard and you could go through Brazilian rosewood, ebony, and bins and stuff like that. And Art also had the idea that the resins in rosewood weren't any good for sound and therefore you should you should soak it in benzene until all of the uh, 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 resins were out of the rosewood. And benzene, as you know, will, could go off with a light switch. Um, so he changed his book to say stick and span. There's an awful lot of references and books and periodicals and, and information about guitars out there. Um, so it's, I, I, I agree, it would be very hard to recommend uh, any modern text just because there's so many you could refer to. Um, well, also, um, you know, this may sound judgmental and I don't mean it to. I mean it to be more of a progressive kind of transitional thing about how we share information. Uh, it used to be if you had, uh, uh, if you had knowledge that other people desired uh, and was hard to get, um, you wrote a book about it and people read the book and you shared the knowledge. That's not the case today. Um, you find information uh, in really specific information and plenty of it online. And so for me personally, people said, why in the world haven't you read a, written a book on guitar making? And I'm going to say, I don't think there's the demand for it. I don't think it's necessary. 
you know, I'll answer any question forthright and share my resources in forums like this. You know, I've done a lot of writing. I'll continue to do so. If anybody ever wants to collect that and put it in the book, go right ahead. But I don't need to do it. You know, I've got a job making guitars. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know that I would uh, uh, think of a book that's been written in the last couple of decades that it's like a go-to book on guitar making itself. Because you know it's a broad field with a lot of methodology, and to put one system in one book, um, that's a tough one. Yeah, yeah. It might not be the place to look anymore for uh, definitive sources. Well, yeah, I think that we have problems when it comes to definitive these days. So, but that's my own opinion. So. <laughs> that's right. At least for computer literate. <laughs> Um, well, yeah, I you know, I certainly understand the the you know time limits uh, uh, on this for whatever reasons, but you're always welcome. Uh, and when I sit down to do this, I'm ready to drive it into the ground. So, you know, don't worry about uh, taking up too much of my time. Well, we we appreciate that very much, and we'll look forward to going over more questions with you. Uh, I'm going to say I'm sorry that we didn't get to more. Um, but when we post this podcast, we just want to recommend everybody go to the Santa Cruz Guitar Players Forum website. You can post questions there. We'll use those as the basis either for these informal question and answers with you, Richard, or we may use them as the basis for an entire podcast uh, on that subject, such as uh, one we have coming up hopefully on next um so there's a lot of uh questions that people have about that and uh i yeah i think that would be a whole podcast in and of itself so um we won't try and cover that today but i do want to say thank you very much uh mr hoover for joining us and and sharing your insight and your wisdom and your knowledge and and your wit and everything else with us uh and i gotta say Thank you to uh, Mr. Newman uh, for all the efforts that you make to make sure mm -hmm. that uh, we can all be heard and seen and this actually makes it up through the clogged internet tubes into those vast repositories wherever they store this stuff. Uh, and thank everybody for uh, listening to us. You know, I guess, if you actually made it this far. Um, <laughs> we. We have some new podcasts in the works. Uh, we are following up with our musicians, and we have a couple of more musicians lined up in the weeks ahead that uh, we're really excited about talking to. Um, so I hope you'll join us for that. Um, anything else we got to add here, um, Richard or Richard? Or should I say Stormy? <laughs> well, yeah, let me let me uh, give a bit of amends. Um, I, I always enjoyed uh, the Ask SCGC uh, on the forum, and I took great pleasure in taking time each week to answer questions. And I and I just have to beg your patience. This year has been extremely demanding and unusual. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the published stuff and the unpublished, but between the COVID preparations, the forest fires, and managing those changes, uh, I, I haven't had elective time to do that. And this gives me the opportunity to answer those questions in depth for the, for the um, uh, benefit of, of everybody at once. And uh, I'm really glad to do it. I'm very grateful for it. So for both you and Richard, uh, thanks immensely for allowing me to do this. 
and for the forum uh, to continue on to spread the word. We hope you enjoyed this installment of the Santa Cruz Coffee Break. For more music-related fun, please join the Santa Cruz Guitar Players Forum at scgcpf or santacruzguitarplayers.com. If you have any questions or possible podcast topics, please contact us. If you have a product or service that you feel would be of value to our listeners, please consider adding your support and keeping the coffee pot on. Contact us for more information. We ask that you hit the like, follow, bell, or bookmark buttons so we can keep you informed of upcoming podcast episodes. We hope you enjoyed Santa Cruz Coffee Break. Now it's time to go play your guitar.